Welcome to Listen by Jean Ginsberg. This audio experience and podcast is all about social media, digital marketing, entrepreneurship, and interviews with top entrepreneurs in the digital and social space. I'm your host, Jean Ginsberg, digital marketing expert, number one best-selling author, and award-winning entrepreneur. I will be sharing with you strategies, tips, and tactics on how to grow your business and your social media following. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, Gene Ginsburg here. Welcome to another episode of Listen by Gene Ginsburg. And today I have a very special guest. Actually, I didn't I haven't known you for a long time, but I actually knew your sister from like 20 years ago, and that's how we got reconnected. So David Rodnitsky is here, and he is the CEO. Is founder title founder. founder okay so right yeah. now you're the founder that's right because you stepped away you can talk a little bit about that actually that's an interesting story now the founder of audrey q digital welcome to the show thanks gene great to be here and great to have someone who can pronounce my last name correctly from <laughs> yeah. over 20 years of experience <laughs> i guess yeah yeah uh awesome well uh first question we usually like to ask our guests just to kind of give our audience some context is tell us about your background my background is i'm from iowa um, and uh, like you, I went to the University of Chicago, and then um, I um, w- then went to law school and decided I didn't want to be a lawyer, and um, moved to Silicon Valley in 1999, basically because I had been in the Midwest all my life and wanted to be somewhere with mountains. Oh yes, that's that's true. There's a lot of a lot of good mountains out there in Silicon Valley. Um, Yes, uh, University of Chicago, that's our, our background too, although I think we didn't go at the same time, but a um, couple yeah. years off. A couple of years off. Um, well, I think your sister and I, I think might have overlapped like a year or two uh, when she was there. It's crazy that you like both you and your sister went to the, <laughs> typically you never see that, that they go to the same um, university. But yeah, I remember when I was at University of Chicago, nobody really knew that school. And now it's like, crazily ranked. I didn't expect that to be the case. <laughs> yeah. People always used to get confused with the University of Illinois at yes. Chicago. Yes. Yeah. You're which, like, you go to UIC. I'm like, uh, yeah. Not, not Circle exactly. campus. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a little bit more expensive than UIC. Yeah. Uh, slightly. It, it was. Yeah. Um, awesome. So tell us, we brought your company up uh, a little bit earlier, digital. So tell us a little bit about that and maybe some, you know, some history and some background about the company. Yeah, so the background is, as I said, I came out to Silicon Valley and uh, just didn't want to be a lawyer and wanted to be on the West Coast. And I got a job at a company where they were hiring warm bodies to just do whatever they needed to do. It was a startup and um, they had no one doing marketing. So I volunteered. And then I was spending all this money with a PR agency and a branding agency. And it was like $50,000 a month. And I could not figure out what exactly I was paying for. And I then discovered this little company called GoTo in Pasadena, California, which offered people the ability to buy an ad and only pay if someone clicked on it. And it was at that time we were talking about like the most expensive ad on the whole site was probably 25 cents click. So I went off and I just started buying everything I could on the site GoTo. And I, it was really the, the origins of search engine marketing. Google wasn't even offering this at that time. Um, and that was 2000, 2001. And then from there, I worked at a bunch of other companies um, and I just kept on learning more and more about search engine marketing and sort of just enjoying it more and more. And I got to the point where I was in 2007, I'd, I'd risen to the ranks of vice president of marketing at an e-commerce company. Uh, however, the company was not doing that great. Um, I was traveling to India once a quarter to manage a team 
and my wife was pregnant. And so it was a holy trinity of reasons not to continue working at that company. So I, I quit and um, didn't have any plan, but I just knew I needed to take some time off. Um, ended up going to a little coffee shop in Pacifica, California, and just every morning taking out my laptop and um, just trying to figure out things to do. So I started a couple of affiliate websites. I had a site. My most successful site was a wrinkle cream website. Um, well, besides I, the current website, right? Which is pretty successful. I'd yeah, say. yeah. Well, no, I'm talking about like from an affiliate perspective, you know, from an affiliate perspective, I actually made some money selling wrinkle cream. I actually co-founded a conference on, um, on content marketing. Um, and then people kept calling me, asking me for help with the search engine marketing stuff. So I, at some point about a year into it, I was like, well, the affiliate site's doing fine. It ended up getting hacked. So the oh, revenue okay. kind of disappeared. I got into an argument with my co-founder on the, on the conference and that died. And then the SEM stuff was growing. So I just started as a consultancy and, and over time I was able to hire a couple of people. My sister, Laura was one of the very first people I hired. Um, and uh, we went from an SEM consultancy to a digital marketing agency. Wow, it's a very similar experience to what I had as well. Yeah, started off uh, on my own, had a couple of websites doing SEO and like affiliate. Uh, and then, yeah, I never really went too far with those. And then, yeah, started a consultancy, just me by myself <laughs> in the beginning. And then just things grew and grew and grew. And uh, yeah, similar, very, very similar trajectory. So um, yeah, I, I love- the common trajectory for, for agency founders. I, I had, I went back to a high school reunion and, Someone at the reunion said, you know, David, it always seems like you were a guy who had a plan. And I'm thinking like, I had no plan. I mean, first of all, I went to law school. That didn't work out. Then I sort of quit my job with no idea whatsoever. And I just was trying to do consultant stuff to make money to pay the bills. And it, then it turned into this agency. So I, I think that happens to a lot of agency founders. Either they leave another agency and they start a consultancy or they've been going in-house and they're like, you know what? The agencies I'm working with aren't that, get, that good. I can do better. And then yes. it morphs into something. That's exactly what I thought. I was working for an agency before. That was like my last full-time job. And I was like, I think I can do better. So yeah, I just left and started my own thing. And then it, yeah, I didn't think it was gonna, I mean, at that time I was like, I don't know, maybe this will grow, maybe it won't. Like it's too young to tell, but um, yeah, interesting, uh, interesting story. Whatever happened to uh, like your law, I mean, obviously your, your law journey, like what were you in the beginning thinking of doing with the legal field? And then when you left where you're like, nope, not for me. <laughs> When I started law school, I had this uh, theory in my head that law was the philosophy of everyday life. And so I had this sort of very idealistic idea that like being a lawyer, you could help sort of shape society for the better. And the truth is, I mean, at least from my law experience, I'm sure everyone has a very different experience. But to me, law is really a professional uh, trade. It's it is not that different than being a plumber in the sense that you're solving problems and you're representing your client as best you can. Uh, and it doesn't have a lot to do with philosophy of right and wrong and, and all that. And, um, and I just felt like it's not what I thought I was signing up for. And on top of that, to be honest with you, being a good lawyer means being very detail oriented and I'm not that detail oriented. I mean, you know, one of the things we can, we can certainly talk about, and, and this sort of relates to why I brought in a professional CEO is, uh, you know, I believe that every company needs um, a someone who's got a gr great amount of strategy at the top, but also someone who has a lot of detail oriented, you know, operational ex excellence. And um, the detail oriented side is not my bag. And so I think I would have made a bit a terrible lawyer, I would have been unhappy, and I would have been bad at it. And so I, I did finish law school, because I was like, I might as well finish it, you know, I three years, 
I'll learn. It's helpful, obviously, in contract negotiation and whatnot. But um, I have never looked back and said, gosh, I wish I had taken the bar and worked at a law firm. <laughs> um, so uh, actually, interesting point when you started talking about the professional CEO. So obviously, you were the CEO for a, a while until you hired someone. And then how, uh, like, how, how did you feel like your detail orientedness was like when you were the CEO? And then you know, how does that differ now when you have a professional CEO? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I always had um, someone who was my sort of right hand person who was, uh, as one of my former COOs called it, um, putting out dumpster fires. Um, so so um, there's a methodology. I'm not sure if, uh, if you use it um, in your firm, but there's a concept called EOS, Entrepreneur's Operating System. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, great system. And they always say at every t- top of every company, there's a visionary and an integrator. And the visionary is the person who's saying in right. three years, this is where the market's going. We need to build A, B, and C. And the integrator is saying, we need to make sure that we pay the bills on time, that we hire accordingly, that we have our contracts reviewed by an attorney and all that stuff. And so I- I've always had an, a COO who was doing that stuff for me while I was kind of thinking about what's going happening in the future. Um, but the CEO that we brought in, this guy, Rob Murray, um, he is I mean, he has both a visionary and an integrator side of him, but from an integration perspective, he has uh, experience uh, integrating and, and running a smooth operation for a company much larger than 3Q had ever been. And so he just brings a whole new level of, of process and, and leadership when it comes to how to operationalize a business. And, um, uh, you know, the, the old uh, adage, you don't know what you don't know. I mean, I... Um, I thought we were pretty good from an operations perspective, but when now that I've seen how it's done at a, another level, I realized how much we were missing. Okay. Um, so tell us a little bit about your experience with bringing in a professional CEO. I guess, what was, what was the catalyst? Like, did you feel like you just, you wanted to take a step back? And it's an, I think it's an interesting story to hear. I mean, I've heard the story a little bit, but interesting story for other uh, entrepreneurs here. Like typically how does this, work and at what point do you decide to to go through that process yeah i mean i have sort of two adages that i always have used as i run the business about the role of an entrepreneur in a business and the the first one is that i've always said that an entrepreneur's job is to fire himself from jobs so you know the whole concept of working on the business and not in the business and and that's something that i have been really trying to do since i started the business in 2008 i mean in 2008 when i started i was chief costco orderer and chief you know, take out the garbage man and all that stuff. And, you know, then I found an office manager and then I found a head of client services. And then I found someone to run finance. And then I found an operation operations person. So, so, you know, finding someone to eventually take over the job of CEO was part of that fire yourself from jobs mantra for me. And it was just a matter of timing. The second thing that I have always thought about is I've always said that entrepreneurs need to be pigheaded when they start a business and then they need to know, know how to get out of the way when the business has gotten bigger than them. So I always think of someone like Larry and Sergey at, at Google, you know, they, they started a search business when search was not hot at all. And people were saying, who cares? Search is already one. It's AltaVista and Yahoo. We don't need another search engine. There's no money in it anyways. And they kept going because they were passionate about it. At some point, the business grew to a point where they're like, you know what? We're really good programmers. We're probably not really good at building a 200,000 person company. So they brought in Eric Schmidt. Um, so I sort of felt the same way. I felt like, you know, I'm really good at certainly going from one person to 10 people and, and maybe from one people, one person to, to 150 people, but 
But as we got to the point where we we're at 200 people, 250 people, we went from three offices to I think 11 offices. I just realized I was like, you know, this is not um, my strengths. And frankly, it's not something that I really am passionate about. I mean, there are people who are passionate about managing big teams and that's not my thing. So in my case, um, I sort of had this feeling that I needed to make a change. Um, I got introduced to Rob through a mutual friend. And what I did is I brought him in as a consultant and I said, Rob, I'm going to give you access to all of our finances, all of our HR information, interview whoever you want. And I want you to come back with, to me and tell me, um, what do you like? What do you don't like? What, what would you do differently? And he spent three or four weeks digging through the data. And then he came back and he said, here are the 50 things I would do differently. And I was like, wow, this is a lot of, you're hired. <laughs> you're hired. Yeah, exactly. So, so I brought him in as president initially, but then as soon as he came in as president, I mean, he, you know, there's another, um, EOS concept called GWC, which stands for gets it wants that has the capacity to do it. And he had the GWC, he had the drive, he had the knowledge. So, you know, he was president for like six months and then I was like, all right, let's make you CEO. And, and he ran with it. That's, yeah, that's a great story. And just for our audiences, you know, we, David and I met also through YPO. And that's one of the things that comes up with uh, having spoken to a number of YPO individuals, uh, Young Presidents Organization, um, is that, yes, what happens when you're like, try, you know, you're like, you got the, got the company, you found it, it's humming along. And then what happens when you're like, I don't know if this is really what I want to be doing for the rest of my life. Um, and then having that transition. And I like how you talk about like, being pigheaded enough to start the business and to run the business and to get it to a certain point, but then like knowing when you need to take a step back. Cause I think that's another thing that I see often with entrepreneurs that like, they're just pigheaded. Right. And so like, they're good at, at starting and driving. Right. But then they're not really good at getting out of the way because they're still pretty, you know, driven and pigheaded. So, um, so it's like, you have to recognize that and say, okay, maybe it's not the time, you know, maybe it's the time for me to bring someone in who is actually more experienced and more and better at it than I am because, you know, I got into a certain point, but I can't get it beyond, you know, to 500 people or a thousand people. So, um, so recognizing that point in, in yourself and making sure that. Yeah. Like, and I'm sure there are entrepreneurs who can do go from one person to a, a million people. I mean, I guess Jeff Bezos, so we were that's talking true. about him before we started, right? I mean, he, he did that. He was one guy in a closet in Seattle and, and he built up a giant company. Um, there's plenty of examples of people who have done it, but I think I knew my limits and it, right. it wasn't me. Yeah. Um, well, um, I think the next uh, topic I want to discuss, since we are both in the digital marketing space, is uh, what are your thoughts on trends uh, that are happening now or are happen or do you think will be happening over the next, you know, let's say year to two years in the digital marketing space? I think the two trends that I would identify, one is um, just the whole, where's my data going <laughs> trend? Um, you know, what's happening to third-party data? What, what is Google and Facebook and Apple doing to, to keep data inside their walled gardens, um, you know, in part in the name of privacy? Um, and, and so how are people going to react to that? And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of people in the digital marketing space who have relied very heavily on third-party data and to some degree, second-party data, which is the data provided by Google or Apple through their systems and have never bothered to really invest in first-party data and what that means to them. And I think we are at an inflection point now where you cannot stick your head in the sand and just say, well, whatever I get from my cookies is good enough. I'm just going to use that. Um, so I, I think there's a, that's a change that's, that's happening and people are waking up to. Um, 
I think the second change is the automation inside the platforms. And um, the all these platforms are investing very heavily in, in artificial intelligence and um, systems that are sort of um, behind uh, the um, curtain and um, are really just kind of, here is our automation, just give us your objective and we'll and trust us, we'll hit it, hit it for you. And um, to some degree, I think some of this is good because some of the automation is very powerful and, and actually does uh, improve performance for advertisers. Uh, in other respects, I think it is taking away tools and levers that could actually be very valuable for advertisers, especially advanced advertisers. Um, so the way that I sort of think about this is about 10 years ago, um, if you were running a Google campaign, um, it was about 80% human expertise and 20% machines. Today, it's probably 50-50. And in 10 years, it will probably be 80% machines and 20% humans. That doesn't mean, by the way, that humans are not valuable anymore. They are valuable. And that that I think any, any business would say, if I could get a 20% lift, um, I'll take it, you know? So that's valuable, but it is definitely changing. So uh, what, what do you think is the view coming up in the next 10 years, whether that's a dystopian or a utopian society, you think like robots and AI and automation are going to be taking our jobs? Well, I think that it, they'll be taking some jobs. I mean, I think, um, you know, there, there have been a lot of people employed in the um, advertising business who have done things like uploading spreadsheets all day or downloading spreadsheets and then crunching numbers. And a lot of that is now being done by machines. We don't need it. Um, the part that's needed is the strategy and the sort of holistic and heuristic approach. So looking at it at a algorithm that Google has released and saying, okay, how do I manipulate this algorithm with my own data and combine it with, with a overall strategy um, to get the most out of it? Because, you know, we are not yet at the point where um, the machines know that it's raining outside and it's time to sell umbrellas. I mean, to some degree we are at that point because that actually is an example of something yeah, that machine I mean, could figure out. That data, right, available pretty right. easily. There's just there's still a lot of nuance though that is that is machines really don't comprehend. I mean, I, I used to use the example. Um, it's a little bit lewd. I don't think it's too lewd. Um, but um, when I was at this e-commerce company, we sold um, furniture and we sold bedroom furniture. And one of the things that we sold was um, nightstands. And at that time, Google did not understand the difference between the word nightstand and one nightstand. Um, oh. And so, so that's an example where a human comes in. And I, again, this, this is an example that he, I think Google has figured out. This was 10 years ago, 15 years ago. But um, you know, there's things that humans can see that, that, that machines still can't. And, and that makes a difference. Um, so, so I don't think, I think uh, the idea that, the, that if you get a degree in online advertising today, you're gonna to be obsolete in five years is not accurate. Um, I do think that more and more the value is going to be on your strategic ability to, to manipulate machines rather than just like your ability to, again, to crunch numbers in, a, in Excel sheets. Right. Yeah, I, um, I was part of this um, mastermind in digital marketing a couple of years ago, and um, we were talking at one point about what does the future look like for digital marketing? One of the things that, uh, that we came up with was that, yeah, strategy, of course, will always be there. And like high level creative, right? Like, because you still have to come up with like creative ideas, like, you know, the 
the Super Bowl ads, right? Like that's that's still not something that probably a machine can do in 10 years. But we we kind of thought about it and came to the conclusion that a lot of like even copywriting, like if you give the machine, like obviously not right now, but I think it's going to get to the point where like copywriting and like even at like ad design will be done by machines because then they can like test it out really quickly without having to like, oh, let's, you know, do this, create this graphic and then put it up there and test it and A-B test it and see like, so I think um, in the future, I feel like all of these things, like kind of the, the, what we call like the supplemental pieces of creating a campaign, right? Like the graphic design, the copy, you know, the the messaging um, will be, a lot of it will probably be done by machines versus like coming up with like strategy and big picture ideas. I don't know, thoughts? <laughs> I, I, I think that's a great perspective. Actually, one of the things that I often tell people about the overall ad industry is I say um, performance marketers need to understand and embrace storytelling and brand and brand marketers need to understand and embrace data and, and analytics. And I think that we both sides of the spectrum so far have sort of been, you know, have been saying, hiding, hiding and saying, I don't want to learn this new, new um, part of the business. But to your point, um, it's no longer the case that you can just put up an ad and get someone to convert, you know, in 30 seconds you need to build a brand. You need to have storytelling. You need to think about how the creative fits with the, with the uh, keyword or the placement. And so, yeah, there are those sort of soft or creative elements that are really important for, for advertisers these days. I'll also say like, you know, with Facebook ads as an example, um, there are a lot of companies out there that focus exclusively on the video creative for Facebook ads. And they will tell you that like the first half second of the video is 50% of whether it's successful or not. So creating a video that really stops someone stops someone from scrolling is the way they describe it is the dif- is the difference between success and failure so that stuff is very important today right that maybe a machine might not be able to get in 10 right. years i don't or maybe they will maybe they'll be like we know under- we now understand what it's like to catch someone's attention maybe better than a human i don't know i guess we'll we'll find out how things yeah i mean if it gets to that point then we're then, then there's going to be more than online advertisers who are going to be out of jobs right and then the whole metaverse thing, right? Maybe that's right. going to be a whole different. <laughs> I mean, if we're at that, we're going to, yeah, we're going to have machines writing fictional novels, you know, I mean, we're, maybe they can, maybe they will be the most tear jerky mo- novels out there, you know? Yeah, that's quite possible. I, I could see that happening, you know? Um, awesome. Well, last question is uh, kind of c- coming on the trends question as well, but not for digital marketing necessarily. Uh, what is your prediction for the industry? And that could be, terraforming Mars, self-driving cars, that could be like, so kind of like trends for digital marketing, but much, much bigger picture for what you think is going to be happening over the next, I don't know, five to 10 years, let's say. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think I'd go back to a little bit what I said in the last question, which is that I think we're seeing a, a convergence of d- direct response marketing and brand marketing. And so, um, you know, first of all, the data is spreading. So, we're obviously used to our Google data and our Facebook data, but now we have TV advertisers who have connected TV and who are getting a ton of data on, on who's actually watching their ads and who's responding. So that's just enabling everyone to be more data centric. And then, as I said, I think there's a realization that brand matters. And even if you are a solar lead gen company trying to get someone to click and pass the lead off and you don't care after that, I mean, you know, if, if there's one solar lead gen company that just gets that click and, and that's all they do. And, and there's another one that actually thinks about lifetime value and tries to create a brand experience that gets people to 
shop with them again and refer their friends and mention them on Twitter, you know, over time, even if you consider yourself a direct response marketer, the brand aspect of marketing is, is mattering more and more. And, and as we talked about, you know, with technology and with automation, the arbitrage opportunities are getting smaller and smaller. And so every little thing counts. So, so I sort of see, um, you know, I, I, I guess I would say this, like 30 years ago, if you looked at a traditional marketing budget for a fortune 500 company, it was probably 95% brand and 5% direct response today. I'm guessing it's probably 50, 50. Um, and it's, it may even move a little bit in the side of direct response, but there's still for the advertising agencies and the advertising world in general, there is still a lot of convergence happening that you have to be aware of and you have to be an expert at to be successful. And what do you think is going to be the case in, in 10 years, which, which way is it going to lead? In 10 years, I guess, um, I guess I think that data and analytics is going to be the core of everything. Um, okay. And I think that there'll still be people who will create amazing brand ads, but they're not going to just sit in a room like Mad Men style and just come up with an idea while drinking a cognac and, and a, smoking a cigar. It's going to be, okay, here's my idea. What does the data say about what, how this is going to work? How can we do a quick test on, a, on an audience and in real time and look at the metrics and figure out whether we're getting the response we need? And it's going to be that sort of sort of data and analytics of fo focus is going to permeate the entire business. So some of the guys at uh, Media Math, uh, the DSP, um, had a, have a good term. They said, we're not mad men, we're math men. And I think that's kind of where <laughs> that's a lot of a good one. Going. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's an awesome one. Math men. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard of that, but that makes sense. Yeah. I stole it. You can steal it too. Yeah. Oh, yes. It's going to be all over. When I'm promoting this uh, podcast on yep. LinkedIn, it's going to be uh, hashtag math men. <laughs> yep. Uh, well, on that note, that was, that was awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, last question is how can our audience get in touch with you or the company? So 3Q Digital, you can just go to 3QDigital.com. And if you have a large scale digital marketing campaign, that we'd be happy to talk to you. And then for myself, um, I am uh, occasionally on Twitter at Rodnitsky. And, uh, and like you, I have a uh, podcast that I'm working on called agenticshift.com. Uh, tell us a little bit about your podcast. The podcast is um, it's interviewing founders of agencies. And so I'm trying to just build a repository of interviews that will help people who are early in their agency careers or founding careers just kind of not make the same mistakes that I made uh, and other people made. And, um, and uh, that's, the, that's the objective. Awesome. And what does 3Q stand for? 3Q stands for the three types of intelligence that we think are important in the ad advertising world. There's IQ, obviously, and EQ, which most people know is emotional intelligence. And then there's XQ, which we made up, which means um, executional intelligence. Uh, or exponential intelligence. Could be exponential. Could but be we, exponential. Were, we, were, we were originally called PPC Associates, and we realized uh, that that name was a, too much of a term of art. You know, it was just... We were more than just doing PPC, so we needed to expand it. So we, we made the decision back in like 2013 or 14 to change, and it's, it's worked out well. We did a rebrand. Yep. Oh, very cool. Awesome. Thanks so much, David Rodnitsky uh, from 3Q Digital. Always good to talk with other di digital agency owners. Um, and yeah, we'll have you back again in a couple, I don't know, in a year or so, see where the changes are in the trends and marketing. So it's great, great to have you. Thanks, Gene. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks.